0: Welcome once again to Top Stories. I am yet again Andy Zaltzman rummaging around in the archives of the Bugle podcast. Environmental protesters were making their voices heard in September 2014. Record numbers took to the streets in New York, leaving John Oliver's dog feeling a little miffed. This is from issue 274 of the Bugle, entitled Beard Means Business. Top story
1: this week, the March of the Protesters. How to save the Earth by walking all over it. (coughs) And uh, last Sunday, uh, there were huge climate marches all over this planet. I don't know about any other ones, but this one definitely (laughs) had some huge climate marches all over it. And the biggest one, again, was right here in New York, Andy. That's right. The Big Apple comes through again. When we do something, we do it eye-catchingly huge. (laughs) Whether it's a slice of cheesecake or a climate change march, we will do it on a scale that will make you think, how is that even logistically possible? (laughs) Um, Now, apparently around 300,000 people hit the streets of New York to try and focus the world's attention on global warming, which is interesting, Andy, were it not for the fact that every single day in this city there are 8 million people on the same streets trying to focus the world's attention on the fact that they're f***ing walking here! (laughs) (laughs) They're f***ing walking here! Can't you f***ing see I'm walking here? Was we're doing that every day. We're doing that every day, Andy.
0: (laughs) Was anyone holding that up as a banner or not?
1: Well, I think that's the next step, isn't it? <laughs> Walk around with placards saying, I am walking here. and uh, Somebody get me a quaffy.
0: <laughs> and do you think it's works? Because uh, I was reading about this and I came to the conclusion that um, the planet is, is, is one of those kind of things that's never fully appreciated until it's gone, uh, like uh, a parachute or a justice system <laughs> or a single scoop of ice cream or the concept of yep. hope. You know, I, I, I really like the planet, John, so I was, I was pleased that New York is uh, stepping, up, uh, stepping up to this plate. Well, the events organisers here estimated the turnout was actually more
1: than 300,000, making it the largest, or one of the largest, environmental-related protests in the history of the US. And at one point in the early afternoon, the march apparently came to a complete halt uh, because the entire 2.2-mile route was full to capacity, meaning that at that point, it wasn't so much a march anymore, it was a stand. (laughs) It was the largest ever stand for climate change in US history. And it really was an incredible sight to see people so energised over it. There was even a minute's noise at one point. Uh, But I can tell you who was not so keen on the whole thing, Andy. My dog. Um, (laughs) She really was not sure what to think about the thousands of people who were suddenly outside where she lives banging things, blowing things and waving signs around. I think that when she sees a protest sign... She really just sees a criminal misuse of a stick. <laughs> you can see, you can see in her eyes, her thinking: take that placard off it, turn the pole sideways, and put it in your mouth. <laughs> it's not rocket
0: science, and it feels great. <laughs> but also. Is it not true that when you got that dog, how, how old was she? she? Was just a couple of months old? She's three. Oh, yeah, just yeah. a couple of months. And uh, did you not buy her as a, as a sort of welcome to the family presence uh, a large number of shares in ExxonMobil as well? So.
1: <laughs> I, d- I did. I did because, you know, it made sense. I was thinking about her future, Andy. I think the other thing that she was concerned about, uh, I think she probably agreed with almost everything the protesters were marching for, I just think there was undeniably a selfish part of it, which very much resented the fact that it interrupted her regular routine of taking a quiet early morning dump in the park. <laughs> and it threw her off for the rest that's of the right. day. I think, you know, it's thinking about long term rather than short term, but when the short term's that important, you can see why she was pissed. That's
0: right. She had to change her emissions, and that's that's a, a strong message to take away from <laughs> <laughs> so it's achieved some change, I guess. Um, right. But it's, it's it's interesting now that this has uh, there's been a, it seems to have been a slight turning of the tide, because generally expectations at these things are, are pretty low on the evidence of previous summits. Yeah, expectations for anything uh, useful coming out of it about the same as the expectations of a one meter cube of lead that's just entered a wobbliest dessert competition. Um, but uh, John Kerry, the U.S. Secretary of State, has promised to put climate change quotes front and centre. Of American diplomacy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's always been front and centre, very much like a pair of glasses on a boxer's face, in that it is most (laughs) likely the first thing to get knocked off when things get tricky.
1: (laughs) You know, I think there probably has been uh, a changing of the tides, probably something to do with the rising of the f***ing tide (laughs) all over the earth. (laughs) But uh, the New York rally was actually just part of this global protest that included events in 156 countries, including Afghanistan, the UK, Italy and Brazil. In Brazil, the famous statue of Christ the Redeemer in Rio uh, had environmental slogans and a green heart projected uh, on him and 5,000 marches turned out. Again, that doesn't seem that impressive a turnout for Brazil. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could get 20,000 Brazilians to turn up to something if you just promised them they could watch a man kick an orange. <laughs> I'm seriously, 20,000 people for that, Andy. You could get 50,000 if you told him he was going to try and kick the orange into some kind of net. <laughs> And it's not that it's not like they don't have serious environmental problems in Brazil. First, Rio is in Brazil, and Brazil is on the earth, so they have pretty similar concerns to the rest of us there. And even at the local level, there is huge controversy over there at the moment over a golf course for the 2016 Olympics, which is being built in a nature reserve. <clears throat> and it's, it's hard to know where to even begin to unpack that sentence. First, golf is evidently and unnecessarily coming back to the Olympics after a much-needed 112-year <laughs> absence. That is ridiculous. And the only way they can make it even more ridiculous seems to be building an entirely unnecessary new golf course in an environmentally protected area in some of Rio's last public green space. What more, Andy? What more majestic a sight is there than watching a rare bird fly majestically out of a protected Rio woodland, only to see it decapitated by a flying Callaway golf ball (laughs) hit by an overweight six-year-old businessman from Florida
0: on vacation. (laughs) It's the circle of life, Andy, just like Elton Squawked. (laughs) Well, I think you're reading this wrong, John. It very much depends on the type of nature reserve it is. And a lot of sports have to change and modernise when they are accepted into the Olympic family. Golf, clearly, uh, from now, will have to build all its courses in nature reserves. But to make the sport more exciting, these nature reserves will be populated by apex predators. Now, you cannot tell me this would not make golf a significantly tiger versus tiger, as God intended. (laughs) The language
1: uh, used at the UN... uh, Uh, after the climate march has been strong. But, of course, the UN specialises in non-binding strong language, Andy. They've created some of the best-sounding suggestions in human history. Uh, Ban Ki-moon said humanity had to act because, and I quote, ''This is the planet where our subsequent generations will live. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B.'' No plan B. Speak for yourself, Moon. That is nothing but a failure of imagination on your part. What about moon colonies? Floating ecodomes. Everyone living underground in warrens. I'm not saying any of those are plausible, Andy, but he
0: didn't talk about plausible plan Bs. He just said plan Bs. Also, I'm going to call bullshit on it, John. but just in this same week, India has put a satellite into orbit around Mars... Becoming the fourth right. nation to do so at a cost of just yep. 45 million pounds—that is a bargain for a Mars trip. To put that in context, that is enough to pay the daily minimum wage to about round about 45 million Indians. Um, to only one day, so that makes it a bargain. Or to put it another way, it's the cost of a toilet seat in billionaire Mukesh Ambani's billion-dollar house in Mumbai. Either way, a bargain. But this, John, is the first step to India setting up a colony. On Mars. I kind of think they might have focused on other more important national problems, such as the inability of their batsmen to construct a proper test match innings. But anyway, let's not be judgmental. (laughs) And furthermore, scientists have discovered a cloud-free atmosphere on a distant planet the size of Neptune, the smallest exoplanet ever to reveal its chemical composition, John. It's got water vapour on it. This suggests... That we could live there. This is the get-out-of-jail-free card that Ban Ki-moon is so studiously ignoring. A new planet we can take over. Currently designated HATP-11b. It's not a great name for a planet, but you know we could fund the whole expedition by selling the naming rights. Um, also, it's only 124 light-years away. Now, that's no biggie. I reckon light probably isn't as fast as it used to be. These things get old and out of shape. It's uh, about one quadrillion kilometres away. It's a bit of a hike, but they used to think it was a long way from London to Edinburgh, and now we are umbilically joined forever. Uh, And it's four times the width of our home world, which just to me makes it sound like four times as much room for parties. So this is the future, John. We have a plan B. President Obama, in his speech, uh, said nobody gets a pass on
1: climate change uh, to the stifled guffaws of the companies in the background <laughs> <laughs> sitting behind him. <laughs> oh, this guy's hilarious. <laughs> we don't get a... Oh, carry on. Sorry, sorry. Uh, he he went, then went on to say, we recognise our role in creating this problem. We embrace our responsibility to combat it. I think he might be wildly misusing the word embrace there, Adam. <laughs> it's... It's a pretty reluctant embrace of that responsibility here in the US, to put it mildly. It's really the kind of embrace you give to someone who you wish would just f- go away. (laughs) In fact, America embraces the responsibility to end climate change the way a wrestler embraces another wrestler. (laughs) It might look affectionate if you're not really watching them closely, but if you pay closer attention, he's actually trying to choke the other wrestler unconscious.
0: (laughs) And also, you know, it's all been arranged way in advance, so there's nothing you can do about (laughs) the end result. (laughs) Uh, This was the first world leaders' meeting on climate change for five years since the 2009 meetings collapsed. ...in what can only be described as hilarious political slapstick. Five years ago, no point rushing back into these things. And we had 120 different government leaders, each making a four-minute speech. I, for one, Mm -hmm. cannot wait for that DVD box set to come out. That is going to be absolutely unmissable. But, of course, they were all overshadowed because one man who is not a government leader made a speech. And he is A, famous, and B, pretty. And that man, of course, was uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, who said this. He said, you can either make history or be vilified by it. A statement which I'm sure certain prominent 20th century European despots would strongly argue with, having proved that it's possible (laughs) to both make history and be extremely vilified by it.
1: Yeah, he spoke to the UN, Leonardo DiCaprio, sporting a beard, and you know an actor is serious, Andy, when they put their beards on. Facial hair obscuring an objectively perfect face is a clear request to be taken seriously. Leonardo DiCaprio is clearly saying, I know you cannot be trusted to focus on anything other than my boyish skin and chisel charm, so I will temporarily cover that up with unkempt whiskers until you have listened to what I have to say, which you will, for you know what lies beneath these bristles. <laughs> Respect my face, but do not be distracted by it. That's what he's saying, Andy. <laughs> no. he, he, he addressed the delegates saying, I pretend for a living, but you do not. And I guess, I get what he's trying to say there, Andy, but I honestly don't think he's giving global politicians the performance jobs they deserve. <laughs> Absolutely. They can put in some
0: pretty self-serving performance <laughs> skills once in a while. Um, he, uh, he also said, because the world's uh, scientific community has spoken and they have given us our prognosis, if we do not act together we will surely perish. Which does suggest that if we do act together, we will not perish, John. DiCaprio (laughs) is offering us the immortality of his own youth. Yes. Yes. What a hero. Thank you for listening. Do support what we do by donating via thebuglepodcast.com. Premium-level voluntary subscribers will shortly receive an exclusive 12-inch vinyl episode of the show. If you're listening in Apple, you can also click the button to support us right now. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss lime bikes, Teslas, the London Overground.